Okay, we are in Ephesians chapter 6. We've been working our way through Ephesians and slowly, slowly pressing our way through, but we're going to have a little bit of a, we're going to step back just a little bit this morning and rehearse and go over just a few things. Uh, oh, it's such a temptation. I've told you every week, I think, I feel like I want to go back and rehearse about everything I've ever said and uh, see if I can straighten it out a little bit and do a little better job. It's just, the Word of God is without depth. You can't exhaust it. And every time you look, there's something new there, something fresh, something that you didn't see the first time, something to add to what you saw the first time or the second time or the third time or whatever. And sometimes it's bringing things back to memory. I I like singing songs like this that really... uh, speak to, you know, the the very thing we're talking about here in spiritual warfare. Uh, I like that third verse where he said, salvation's helmet on each head with truth all girt about. You know, and that's part of what we've been talking about here. Um, What did I do with my notes here now? I put them down. And, you know, here we go, this of all things, this morning, couldn't get the printer to work, so I uh, had to get John. He said, thanks for John Giles. I thank you for John Giles, too. John, I can't get this thing to print. It says the door's open on the printer, and I went bang, 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 slammed everyone, shut it, and it still says the door's open on the printer. I don't know what was going on, but I like when I have either Jeff or John or somebody here that knows how to get them things going. So <laughs> here we go. We're, I think we're ready to roll here. And uh, I, I trust the, you'll be blessed by the Lord's word here. Um, you know, and in, in this letter, we've been talking all the way through Ephesians. We're down in chapter 6, approaching the end. And, you know, really here, Paul is just summing up and putting in a practical way how we're to live for Christ and how we're to walk with him and it's just amazing, you know, what he has revealed to us by way of our place and position in Christ. And that's really what the first three chapters were about, what we are in Christ. You know, in chapter one, he revealed to us that we were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. He said we were predestinated unto the adoption of children, that we have redemption through his blood. We've obtained an inheritance. We know about the inheritance. Uh, We've been quickened together with Christ. He's raised us up with Christ to sit together with him in the heavenlies, our place and position in Christ. Brother Jerry read about how long that's going to be in the ages to come, he said this morning, that that God might show forth in the ages to come. It's going to be a long time. God is doing a mighty work in us today for a purpose, a long time purpose. As a matter of fact, later on uh, in the next chapter or two chapters, um, Paul said, that um, unto him be glory in the church through Christ uh, Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. 
we made note of that verse and said that means un, literally it's unto the age of the ages with a specific focus on the age to come, the millennial age. But back before that, in verse uh, 11, concerning all these things, he said, according to the eternal purpose, which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we took note of that verse also, that the words eternal purpose mean Literally, the purpose of the ages. According to the purpose of the ages. God, being our creator, had a definite and specific plan in mind when he created us. When he brought this world and this universe into existence. And every created creature, there is a plan in motion, a purpose to be carried out, and it will come to pass, and it is going to happen. And that's why we need to be very, very cognizant and careful about what we read in God's Word, how we read God's Word, and what that means for you and I today. All of these things that He's done for us, and in making us sit, and furthermore, then He said, And we Gentiles, he says, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. How we can rejoice in that today. I don't think there's any Jewish people amongst us today. But we have been Gentiles, have been drawn near by the blood of Christ. And, he says, fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. And fellow heirs. Joint inheritors, co-inheritors, and members of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. All of these things, Paul said in the first three chapters. Things that we have, benefits that have accrued to us in Christ. Then beginning in chapter 4, he changed his pace. And Paul begins to make proper application of what we have learned about our position in Christ to how we are then to live in view of the gospel. Those who have received these benefits by having received Christ as their Savior, now look at these benefits. So I want you to notice something here. He says, I therefore, I therefore, that is, In view of all the things that we've said up to this point, the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that you do what? Walk. Then look at verse 17. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord. Now, we're still in chapter 4 in verse 17. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you henceforth walk not as Other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. So we have a positive instruction and a negative. But that isn't all. Then he goes on to say in chapter 5 and verse 1, he says, Be therefore followers of God as dear children and walk in love. You notice how these therefore, therefore, therefore 
have walk connected with them every time. He goes on to say in chapter 7, or excuse me, chapter 5, verse 7, he says, Be not ye therefore partakers with them. For ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So there is a therefore and a walk to be taken note of in view of the position and the benefits and the things that God has given to us in Christ Jesus. He goes on in chapter 5 and verse 15. See then that ye walk. Now the word then, that's the same word as therefore. So our translators could just as easily have said, see therefore that you walk circumspectly. All of these, all referring to the same thing. That which Paul has talked about in chapters 1 through 3, and then the conduct of a believer in view of our position in Christ. What we are to be in him. See then, therefore walk, therefore walk, therefore walk. This ought to tell us something then. That it's not just a matter of getting saved and going to heaven. Which we've said many times and I suppose I'll say it many times in the future. There is more to the Christian life than just sitting around waiting until I die so I can go to heaven. There is a life to be lived and it's a We use that big word uh, the theologians use, a sanctified life. And all that means is a life that has been genuinely set apart for Jesus. A life to be lived for him. Why? Well, if we have been raised together with him, if we have been seated together with him in the heavenlies, why then would we not want to live for him now? It just makes sense, doesn't it? It, it? it fits. And that's where we ought to be. And of course, the consequences of that, of not doing that, Paul addresses in other letters that he wrote of what it would mean not to walk in the manner he tells us to do. What if it was that we did not walk in love to our fellow believers? to our fellow saints? What if it was that we did not walk circumspectly? Or we did not walk worthily? Or we did not walk in the light and we just walked in darkness? John has a little bit to say about that. We've been studying that on Wednesday nights in 1 John. Walk in the light as he is in the light. Let's turn over there, 1 John, and just take a a quick look at that. 1 John chapter 1.
I'd really like to go back to verse 1, but I guess I shouldn't do that. <laughs> but it does say regarding John's experience with Jesus, he looked upon him, he handled him, and it says in verse 2, and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. What in the world is he talking about? How can you manifest eternal life? How can you reveal that? How can you make it appear? How can you make that known? If you look at the Greek text, the words eternal life, you know, and, and if you look at the context of, say, the rich young ruler coming to Jesus by night, uh, or, or, or excuse me, coming to Jesus, not that's Nicodemus, but uh, <laughs> the rich young ruler coming to Jesus and wanting to know how he could have eternal life. And in the context, we find he's talking about eternal life as being what's to come in the future, the age to come. Or as one translator put it in his New Testament, the life of the age to come. And he knew exactly, you know, what John was talking about here, the life of the age to come. The rich young ruler knew exactly what he was talking about. He asked Jesus about the same thing. What do I need to do to have life in the coming age, in the coming millennial reign, in the coming time when Messiah comes to rule over the earth? I want to know, Savior. I want to know, Jesus, teacher. I would like to know what good thing do I need to do so that I can be assured that I can have life in that age? Boy, he thought that was really important. That was uppermost in his mind. Of all the questions he could have asked Jesus, that was the one he wanted to know about. You know, that's the one we need to know about as well. We need to know what it is about the coming age that Jesus spoke about so frequently, that the apostles spoke about so frequently, and the New Testament writers, that he wanted to be there more than anything else. He wasn't concerned about present-day materials. He wasn't concerned about his present-day health or any of the other things going on in his life at that time. It was, what can I do to be sure I'll be there after I die in the next age? Now, that was a long time ago, 2,000 years ago. And he hasn't got there yet. But Jesus told him exactly what he had to do. And he didn't mince any words about it. And John didn't mess around with his words here either. When he says here that we bear witness, that is we apostles bear witness and show unto you that eternal life, that life in that coming age, and which was with the Father and was manifested unto us, made known unto us apostles. And in view of all of that, then he comes down to verse 6. He says, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk. Now, there's that familiar word we just were talking about. 
If we say that we have fellowship with Jesus, but we walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. Verse 7 says, though, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. We have fellowship one with another. Who do we have fellowship with here in that context? You and me? If we're walking in the light, we have fellowship with God. And if we have fellowship with God, we have the assurance. As Paul or as John goes on to delineate for us in the rest of this book, we have the assurance that we have and possess that life of the age to come. And we can know it with a certainty. And Paul knew it. And Peter knew it. Because they told us. Now, John doesn't say it in so many words. Neither does Jude or James. But I can guarantee you they knew it too. They all got their message from the same master teacher. So... When he is talking about walking, when he says, therefore, walk in a certain way, then he's talking about walking in a manner in which will guarantee or assure to us that we have the Lord's heart, we have the Lord's mind, and we have his attention on our lives. And I want to tell you something, we really do need that. We need God's attention on our life. You know, sometimes we just speak as if everything is going this way, you know, heavenward, towards God. And that's, that's a, a big part of our life. A big part. But we need to know also that we have God's attention on us. That he is showing forth his grace, his favor on us as we walk. And as we walk, we find then when he comes to chapter 6 and verse 10, at the end of this therefore walk, therefore walk, therefore walk, therefore walk, therefore walk section, that he says, finally. Finally, my brethren, my brothers, I just, I just love the intimacy with which Paul and Peter and James and John spoke with their readers. People that they had intimate contact with and association with. And you know where they got that from, of course, was their master teacher himself, the Lord Jesus When he said, they will know you are my disciples if you have love one to another. And we saw earlier also in this study that love was the, like the foundational theme for everything that Paul is talking to us here with regard to it, the Christian community. Those who have been called out and those who have been surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ 
and devoted themselves or, well, let me put it this way, had devoted themselves to the Savior, to being disciples, followers of his. That's the foundation. That's the basis. Loving one another. But he says, finally, my brethren, and he enters into this uh, section here as he closes this letter about what life is really going to be like. I mean, we've been up here on a high plane all through the book of Ephesians. Now we're getting ready to be hit with the reality of life. Spiritual warfare and a fight. I already talked about it last week, so I I didn't really intend to spend a lot of time on this this week, and I just want to rehearse just a couple of these things, but just to be reminded that the belt of truth, this... this, um, this uh, girt about with truth, your loins girt about with truth, down there in verse 14. We are to put on the whole armor of God, the entire thing. We're not to leave any part of it off. We're to wear the whole thing. Takes every piece of armor in order to fight this warfare. And he tells us then, that this belt of truth is to be placed upon us as the very first item. And we took note of that last week. That's what a soldier would do. When he was gearing up and getting ready for battle, first thing he did is put on the belt. The belt, you know, you didn't really want to wear a belt other times. They wore a nice, fairly loose-fitting robe. And I'm going to tell you something, in this kind of hot weather that we're having this summer, as they would have over in Rome... You wanted something a little loose-fitting, like, like, like Otis wears there. He, he's, from, he's from Central America, and I've got one of them shirts in my closet at home, and I love it. I, I got a bunch of shirts, actually, and I like those open tail at the bottom here. You do that to let the air get through, keep cool. But when you got ready to enter into battle, you tightened up. You put the belt on because you were getting ready to fight. And all that was central to everything else then that the soldier put on. And that, of course, referred to then the devotion, the loyalty, the faithfulness of the soldier. He was going into battle. Second thing he did was put on the breastplate of righteousness. That was to protect all the vital organs and the upper torso. Very important. The breastplate of righteousness. Not that initial righteousness that becomes ours when we believe on Jesus, but the practical righteousness of our outward faith as we live it out day by day. I mean, after all, when the soldier was inducted into the army, that was only the beginning. Then he had to practice his soldierliness as he went out into battle. And that's what we do. Then he says, our feet are to be shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And we took note of that word preparation, and it had to do with sure-footedness, about having sandals on that fit, and the straps were whole, and they wouldn't tear in battle because, boy, you didn't want one to come loose. You remember we said also they were studded on the bottom so they could be sure-footed, and a lot of translators translate it that way to be sure-footed. 
so that we can stand firm in the battle. I, I, I didn't bring one. Oh, I just was reading about, uh, in another context altogether, about somebody in battle and, and um, their shoes coming loose. <laughs> I don't know why I didn't bring that, because I said, man, that fits this. This is perfect. But you don't want that in battle. You want all your gear and equipment to be working. And then you have the shield of faith, he says, which is able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked or the wicked ones. So you not only have Satan to contend with, but you have his cohorts, the wicked ones, to deal with. And so you wear this shield of faith, and that is our daily walk of faith. And you know what the promise is here is that if we wear that shield of faith, if we're walking in faith... It will quench every flaming arrow that the devil throws at us. So you can stand in faith, no matter what the enemy brings against you. It doesn't matter. And then we'll take the helmet of salvation. We noted there that the word is different. When he says uh, in verse 13, he says, Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God. That means to to take up. But here, it means to receive. In other words, as this equipment was handed out, you were to receive it. Now, you didn't put the helmet on till the moment you were ready to enter into battle. So you know here that the salvation of which he's speaking was not the initial salvation of a believer when we first trusted Christ. This salvation that he's speaking of here has to do with that ongoing, regular walk with the Lord and deliverance from the enemies of God. And it's a daily warfare. If you are setting, well, let me put it this way. If you have your heart and your mind and your soul set on arriving safely, in that coming millennial rule, in that coming kingdom, then you'll want to prepare yourself for the battle. And you'll want to be delivered from every enemy that, uh, that accosts you along the way. So that when the day comes, you will be standing in victory, ready to enter into his kingdom. Now, presently, we are in his kingdom. Colossians 1.13 tells us that we have been placed there, translated there into the kingdom of his dear son. But there's coming a day in that coming rule of Christ when he will literally stand upon the earth and rule this earth and call forth those that he has deemed worthy to reign with him who have withstood the test of faith and endured all those flaming darts and arrows, which, Paul says, our faith will quench instantly. So what's the point? The point is simply this, that if you are not walking in faith, you're going to get hurt by the arrows. You may be a Christian and not walking in faith. And if the devil's throwing his darts at you, <laughs> seeking to destroy you, it's going to hurt. 
And there's going to be a lot of pain associated with it. But if we've got that nice big two foot or two and a half foot by four foot shield that we talked about of faith as one of his soldiers, then it's not going to fail you. It's going to put out every arrow. And as we said, that big old shield was soaked in water. So that when he held it up there and the flaming arrows were shot at him, that Roman soldier could put out those flames or he wouldn't put them out. The wet shield would put them out. It's very important for you and I to know that those darts, flaming darts, flaming arrows from the enemy can be extinguished and quenched, as the scripture says, instantly. How? Because we're walking every day in faith. I come back to my scripture that I use all the time. Hebrews 11, 13, where it says, These all died in faith. That's where we want to be. But I can tell you this, a lot of people who claim Christ don't die in faith. Their faith has become shipwreck. They've lost it. They've given up. They've quit. And that's not where Paul wants us to be. That's why we're in the battle. That's why we, you know, the whole implication uh, uh, here is that when you pick this stuff up, all this battle gear, it's on to stay. We're here for the duration. We don't give up. There's no, no armor, we said last week, for the back. Everything is forward-facing. You don't turn around. You don't desert your post. You stay where God's put you, and you fight. You fight, though, as one standing. He says, having done all to stand. And that we said that word means to maintain your ground. Stand your ground. I'm amazed that uh, they come up with this phrase, you know. Uh, um, well, I know they did it in Florida and some other places about, you know, being able to protect yourself. But stand your ground law, you know. Well, that's, that's scriptural. In spiritual warfare, it is scriptural to stand your ground. And that's what Paul wants us to do. Now, he talks about the sword of the Spirit, he says, which is the Word of God. The word here, where it says the Word of God, the Greek word is rhema. It has to do with the spoken word. There's another word that's commonly used when it's talking about the written word, and we're familiar with that. It's logos. We find that in John chapter 1, verse 1. And here... He's talking about, in spiritual warfare, being able to claim God's word in spiritual warfare. I think, for me, it mostly reminds me of the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. And if you look over there in Matthew chapter 4, when the devil took Jesus out into the wilderness to be tempted of him, and it's a scene of which we're all very, very familiar, and we all know very well. And how oftentimes 
so many times when Jesus was challenged by the devil, he answered with a sword, (laughs) the sword of the spirit, which is, he says, the word of God. So it's a spoken word. And you and I do the same thing. It's when we use an utterance, a speaking of God's word from our heart in time of need, in time of battle. And that's why it's important to know the scriptures, number one. Number two, it's important to have memorized scripture so that when the need arises, you've got scripture to do battle with. That's why so many people get defeated is they they don't have they haven't got a sword in their hand to fight with because they don't know the word of God and they don't have anything memorized to fight with. And I could I, I I've told you on several occasions I I love Hebrews chapter four actually chapters three and four you got to put them all together um, regarding. The battle that the children of Israel were in when they came out of Egypt and their refusal actually to enter into battle and to go in and take the promised land. And they weren't allowed to enter. And he says they couldn't enter because of unbelief. But then in chapter 4, he goes on to say, there remains yet a rest to the people of God. There is one yet to be possessed or taken possession of by God's people. And then when you come to the end of that, cha- at the end of that chapter, and I'm, I'm going to go over there and, and read that, because I, I think it's absolutely essential and important for us to recognize the value of such a place where we can make an appeal to God. And this, I'm, I'm talking about all this with reference to rhema, the spoken word. And I've spoken these words time and time and time again, and it has been the most, for me, now, just for me, it's been my most effective words to use in Scripture. God has answered it every single time I've ever had to use it. Not one single time has it ever failed me. But you see, the important thing to to understand is that in chapters 3 and 4, especially chapter 3, he's talking about the wilderness congregation which came out of Egypt and failed to enter into the promised land and take possession of what was ultimately to be the kingdom over which God would rule, a theocratic kingdom. Then, when we look at chapter 4, and he talks about entering into that rest, He says in verse 11, he says, let us labor, let us give diligence, therefore, to enter into that rest. Now, literally there, it's the rest. He's talking about the specific rest that is laid out there for the future believer. Lest any man fall after the same example of those Israelites in unbelief or disobedience. 
For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to dividing sunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. You know, when he says we're to enter in and not fall by the same example of unbelief, then he turns and makes immediately an appeal to God's word. In the same way that they could have appealed to God's word and entered into the promised land, so we have God's word we can appeal to when it comes to entering the rest. He says in verse, uh, I want to skip down a little bit for time's sake, verse 14, seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You know that word boldly? Now we're going to see this again here in a minute. Boldly with freedom of speech, is what that word merely means. To be able to speak freely. To be able to come to the Lord and speak with freeness. We don't have to cower down and say, Lord, if you, just, if you could just please help me and, you know, and beg God. But I want us to notice the context in which that promise is given. That it's for the person who is seeking the entering of that rest that he's speaking of. And it's the same thing, this word rest is the same thing that Paul and Peter and James and the Lord Jesus himself and Jude all spoke about regarding the life of the age to come. That if we are walking our walk in obedience to the Lord, when we have trouble in the battle, we can come with boldness to the Lord for deliverance, for help, for strength, whatever the need is to overcome and win the battle. Back here in Ephesians, when he begins in verse 18, praying, praying, he says, always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. What's the picture here? A walk of prayer. Prayer, and you don't, you don't, it doesn't exactly tell you that, but the implication you get from the participle there, praying and watching, is that the only way you can take up that offensive weapon of the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, is through prayer. And you wield that thing with prayer, the Word of God. How do you come boldly under the throne of grace? In prayer. And Paul says, and for me, verse 19, pray for me. 
Pray for all the saints, but pray for me. And notice what he says. That utterance, speech, freedom of speech may be given unto me that I may open my mouth boldly. Actually, the word boldly there is that same word, freedom of speech. That I may be able to speak with freeness, as I ought to speak, he says, to make known the mystery of the gospel. Now, we often just say, well, that means Paul when he's out evangelizing and so on. But remember, Paul was in prison here. And some think that this, this prayer request of Paul's was so that when he appeared before Caesar, he would have the the boldness. Just like we appear before the Lord Jesus with freeness of speech, he wanted to be able to appear before Caesar and present the mystery of the gospel freely. That's a pretty awesome thought. What if you had to stand before the governor of this state or the president of the United States or whoever? And uppermost in your mind was presenting the gospel and being able to do so with boldness, with total freedom of speech, just to let it go. We'd just say, well, down in the islands, (laughs) we used to just say, let her rip. Let it go. But he doesn't end it there. In verse 20, he says, for which I am an ambassador in bonds, I'm in chains, I, I am sitting here, you know, I, I'm, as I'm dictating this letter, I have a shackle around my arm and a chain going from there over to another Roman soldier, and he's sitting right here with me. And it may very well be that Paul was not physically, literally in a prison cell at this moment, and I'll show you that in just a moment. That therein I may speak... Boldly, there he makes that appeal again. Boldly, as I ought to speak. That ought to be true of us. We need to be free. We need to have such a conviction in our hearts as to the truth of the gospel that we speak it boldly and freely. Now, Paul asked for prayer there, and I'm running out of time, so I'm going to end it this way. He asked for prayer. My question to you then is, is did he get his prayer answered? Did it happen? Well, let's turn back to Acts chapter 28. Acts chapter 28, of course, you know right away, that's the last chapter in the book of Acts. And you know that Paul's in prison by this point. He's he's awaiting sentencing. And in verse 30, I'll just cut out some of this for the sake of time again. In verse 30, he says there, Paul dwelt two whole years in his own hired house. Now, whether he wrote Ephesians while he was in this hired house, I can't say with any certainty, but he may have. But even if he did, and see, if he was in a cell, he wouldn't have needed to have a a soldier chained to him. He'd have been behind bars. So the likelihood to me is, is he was in this hired house and he was paying for it himself. And yet he had this Roman soldier chained to him. So he dwelt two whole years in his own hired house and received all that came in unto him, 
preaching what? The kingdom of God. He didn't say preaching how to get saved and go to heaven. He said preaching the kingdom of God. And teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence. Now, if you have a newer translation, I don't know, it may say with all boldness because it's the same word. With all boldness. Did Paul get his prayer answered? Sure did. There he sat in that house with a soldier chained to him and everybody that came in to see Paul, he preached the kingdom of God with all boldness. Freedom of speech. No man forbidding him. To be armed for spiritual warfare... Oh, yeah. It's important. And whether you think about it day by day or not, and I know that that's not something we all get up and think about first thing in the morning. Well, have I got my armor on today? You know, we don't, we don't consciously do that. But as we engage ourselves with the Word of God, and as we are... As Paul said earlier in the book of Ephesians, as we are walking circumspectly with alertness. And by the way, that's what that word um, watching, when he says praying, the participles praying and watching, watching means being awake. Matter of fact, one said even means just lying in bed, but you're awake. You're on the alert. Always watching, always prepared. For the devil's darts and arrows that he likes to throw at us and deceive us and trick us with his wiles to get us off the path so that we will not be able to participate in that kingdom rule. Warfare is real. And the warfare of this present evil age is real. And we need to be on the alert to walk in such a way that we will know when life is over and the curtains are being drawn on our life that we haven't failed. We've won the victory and we can claim, as John says in the book of Revelation, we can be an overcomer. And being an overcomer That means we have all those benefits and rewards that go to the overcomers will be ours. What a glorious and blessed thing to look forward to. But it takes fighting now to do it. And it takes warfare to do it. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for looking down from heaven upon us today to enter this place of worship and meet with us as we've gathered our hearts around your word, as we've sought to understand what it means to be a warrior for Christ, to be fitted for battle, to put on these various pieces of armor and to stand our ground against the devil and to know that living and walking 
and breathing a life of faith will quench every arrow that the enemy throws at us, every flaming dart, it will quench them, put them out. And we can continue to walk victoriously every single day. Oh, Father in heaven, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ who made all these things possible. And as we look to that coming day, which we all believe is very, very near, when that trumpet sound will be, and all of the things of this evil age will be brought to a close. And the triumph of Christ will be made known to this world. Lord, let us, let us believe and walk in faith. Therefore, in Jesus' name I pray, amen.